Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's episode is all about striped bass and Massachusetts fishermen. What can fishermen do for sustainable harvest of striped bass? What can seafood eaters do to help sustain striped bass? And what can citizens do to ensure that there will always be striped bass swimming off our shores? What you can do for striped bass will be told once you learn more about the various, about this voracious game fish, the striped bass. To tell us more about it all is my guest, Chatham fisherman Darren Saletta. Hello, Darren. Hey, Rob. How are you doing this afternoon? Very good. Did I say your last name right? You did. Thank you. <laughs> uh, let, let me tell people a bit more about you. Darren Saletta has, a commerci- has commercially fished for 20 years for groundfish, shellfish, and lobster, and migratory species, tuna, dogfish, striped bass, and bluefish. He also owns the Monomoy Sport Fishing, offering custom fishing charters, harbor, and eco-tours. Darren is a 1999 grad of Cornell University, he holds a B.S. in marine science, and he studied at Woods Hole, attending Sea Education Association's uh, program, semester at sea program. And uh, along with fellow fishermen, Darren founded the MCSBA, which is <coughs> Massachusetts, excuse me, which is Massachusetts Commercial Striped Bass Association. Darren also works part-time with the commercial Cape Cod commercial hook and line fisherman association. association. Yeah, you just gave me the initials here, man. <laughs> so, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, it was a tough one, Rob. You only gave me 500 characters to work with there, and a couple that's acronyms, okay. just, which are quite common in the right. fishing industry. Yes, yes, I am. Um, yeah, it's just remarkable the work that's being done by the Hook Fisherman Association. Uh, let's um. Uh, where are you calling us from? Are you in Chatham now? Yeah, I'm com- currently down in Chatham and uh, actually got a chance to get out on the water just yesterday and enjoying this uh, endless uh, warm fall that we seem to be blessed with this year. Uh, so how warm did it get on the water yesterday? Uh, it, it was nice. It was real nice. It was probably uh, about 60 degrees out there and took the opportunity to get some uh Work done on the boat and try to try to get some of this winterizing uh, done before the deep freeze sets in, which could happen next week. Who knows? By winterizing, do you mean putting the boat away for the winter, or getting ready to go out in the winter? I'm putting some of the gear away. Uh, you know, things are wrapping up. I'm a little less involved in the shell fishing these days, which is uh, still quite strong here in Chatham and actually growing again after a little bit of lull for a few years. 
but uh, I'm, I'm quite involved in a couple other projects, so a little less shell fishing for me and putting the bass gear away. The bass, uh, they hung in late this year, but uh, headed south sometime in late October, early November, and you know, not not too much going on in, in that uh, neck of the woods nowadays. So the, for those of us that aren't so close to the ocean and not in the Northeast, tell us a bit about the ecology and the pattern, you know, travel patterns of striped bass. Well, striped, striped bass are considered a pelagic migratory species. They tend to... Uh, base themselves mainly around the Chesapeake Bay, but uh, along with several other major bays and harbors along the uh, mid-Atlantic coast, as well as some towards the northeast. However, the primary spawning population resides in the Chesapeake Bay, and uh, one of the reasons why water quality issues in the Chesapeake are are so very important and uh, have a considerable impact on the striped bass. Uh, The the bass will generally... Uh, start their migration north in the uh, mid-spring, April-ish, and make their way uh, as far north as New England and uh, up to Nova Scotia as well in the late spring, generally showing up around the Cape Cod waters in heavy numbers in, uh, towards the tail end of May and the bigger fish moving in in June in, in massive numbers. And uh, they'll stay, stick around for the entire summer, feeding heavenly on the abundant food sources in the waters of New England and uh, off of New York and, and, and whatnot, and uh, fatten up, store a lot of energy, and then make that migration south in the uh, mid to late fall, traveling down past New York and, and New, Jer- New Jersey and uh, providing plenty of surf fishing for the fellows down there, and then uh, heading further south and wintering generally anywhere between southern New Jersey and South Carolina, uh, up into the Chesapeake and down off the Outer Banks, North Carolina, and uh, making their winter home there, feeding, breeding, and then making their way back north again. So they travel around in schools, I guess, or packs. They generally travel in, in quite large schools. Uh, and, and you know some that are so large they're really uh, hard to imagine. And amongst those massive migratory packs are uh, occasionally smaller schools or you know packs of fish that uh, will tend to stick together sometimes in what appear to be size classes. And uh, but generally it's it's a it's a very large vast migration of a lot of fish moving up and down the coast. And they do tend to stick close to the coast. However, uh, we're seeing more and more of them offshore nowadays, and uh, that is being reported by uh, bycatch and offshore fisheries, by tuna fishermen well offshore that are uh, having a high incidence of the bass uh, hitting their tuna rigs in areas where previously they were less common. But the bass Hmm. will follow the food, and if the food are offshore, uh, they'll move offshore as well. And tell us more about the food. Well, the food is uh, something we're working on heavily, uh, both at Mass Commercial Striped Bass Association and the Cape Cod Commercial Hook Fish Association, along with a number of other uh, groups interested in protecting the forage species, as they're called, uh, for both striped bass and uh, almost all fish in, in the waters that we're discussing today. Uh, namely, 
we're discussing herring, menhaden, and mackerel. And along with those fish, uh, striped bass also feed heavily on, you know, smaller fish and sand eels. Uh, mm. The last few years, they've been feeding heavily on sand eels here off the Cape Cod waters. However, uh, that, there's several reasons for that, and, you know, they've got to feed. So the, the relative lack of menhaden and mackerel and herring uh, is is providing a problem, and I, luckily the steps are being taken to try to protect these species currently. And are um, sand eels a eel or a fish? It's actually it is technically a fish, I, I believe. Don't quote me on that biologically, but it's a you know the American sand lance. It's a, you know, they generally run four to six inches long, very narrow, shiny little silvery gold. Uh, Fish that kind of live in and around the the bottom of the in the sand, and they'll jump in and out of the sand, and uh, the bass will just be down there gorging on them. And you know, when you catch a bass, it's not uncommon for uh, sand eels to get spit all over the water and in the boat if you bring it on board. And uh, you can really get a good look at what they're eating because they they'll just gorge themselves, and their bellies will be distended, and they feed quite heavily on these little guys. Yeah, I didn't want them to be. Didn't want listeners to confuse them with the, the river eels that you'd encounter in Chatham Harbor or something. No, and, and the, the eels uh, again; those are an, another important food source for bass. Um, however, you're you're less likely to see them around here in, in massive schools or, or bait balls, as we like to call them, big pods of bait that the fish will um, surround and just feed on voraciously. Generally, uh, striped bass and bluefish mix feeding on these species and uh, you know, doing quite an, uh, a number on them. But the generally, the, the pods of these bait are really bigger than the uh, mind can comprehend. We're talking miles upon miles and layers, feet thick of these uh, bait fish. So unfortunately, we have some commercial midwater trawlers that are doing some damage to those big bait balls, Right. Well, the the and and the herring as well. You know, they'll they'll ball up as we we're discussing. However, um, slightly different than, for example, the bait we were just talking about. But absolutely, the the commercial uh, pair trawlers are a big problem. I, uh, not only for the striped bass fishery, but for just about every fishery uh, in New England. Uh, they have been essentially decimating the herring and mackerel stocks regionally, and in addition to the massive amount of fish that they're harvesting, they're also, uh, they have a considerably high, considerably high rate of bycatch, including haddock, and, and uh, unfortunately, we believe striped bass, too. So uh, a number of organizations, uh, ranging from uh, the Mass Commercial Striped Bass Association, the Hook Association, Choir Coalition, uh, Honest Bycatch, and uh, a variety of others are working to not only protect the forest species, but to make these boats accountable for what they are catching. Uh, for the past several years, they weren't required to necessarily even report everything that they were catching. So we really had no idea how much fish other than the herring they were killing. And there's a lot of evidence 
and reports from observers on board the, the few vessels they have been on that suggest that the bycatch rates are, are significant. And uh, these fish aren't being counted for. They're not being factored into uh, the mortality estimates in, in the management schemes. And also on top of the bycatch, the, the pair trawlers are uh, really damaging entire areas. Uh, they're wiping out spawning stock. We've, we've had reports from fishermen that buy these herring boxes uh, for bait with, you know, getting the boxes full of baby herring, uh, sometimes even haddock mixed in with the adult herring, along with river herring. So all these things that really shouldn't be in the box are in there. Uh, the pair trawlers also do damage to the bottom. And as we know, that's just a practice we really need to try to get away from because the bottom is where all juvenile fish um, have their best chance of success and, and where the spawning grounds uh, proliferate. And when you, when you wipe these bottoms clean, uh, it damages the stocks, period. Unfortunately, we've, we've uh, seen these pair trawlers Right at the you know three four mile line, just here off of Chatham, almost a, a day or two after striped bass season closes, and it's quite unfortunate seeing them out there because we know that there's striped bass present, and they're also fishing in areas where we've had very high indexes of juvenile cod and haddock, which are fish that we're desperately trying to rebuild for the benefit of all fisheries, and uh, here we are with letting them draw these huge nets through and, and kill everything that they get in them. And that's what happens. Everything does die if they're caught in these nets. Yeah, that's and just... just to give your, your listeners a little added perspective on what pair trawling is, they're, they're towing a net so large that it takes two vessels over 100 feet to haul this net. And one end of the net is attached to one vessel and the other on the other vessel. And uh, then they'll haul back the catch to one of the two vessels. Absolutely massive operation, which has been outlawed yes, in Canada and Alaska. It's so yeah, large that they can't put the net on board. They have to just pull up beside the ship. They, they pull up beside and pump the fish into the boats. And, uh, you know, there are grates and pumps and all kinds of devices that uh, even if the fish were to be released, it's probably going to be damaged to the point that it can't survive. Darren, we'll be right back after this break. Okay, thanks. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Yes, we're talking about striped bass, and we were talking with uh, Chatham fisherman, uh, commercial fisherman Darren Saletta, and Darren was telling us about the um, how inefficient and devastating these large midwater trawling vessels are that um, are offshore, and it takes you know two vessels to work a net around, and they just corral everything um, next to the ship. And they've been towing so long that frequently few of the things in the net will survive if released. And then you were saying that it's, it's orders of magnitude of biomass that's more than just the herring or the intended catch, isn't it? Absolutely. There's a bycatch issue there, Rob, and it's something that the uh, various councils, management people, and organizations that are uh, lobbying against these fishing efforts are uh, trying to help. And uh, yes. create accountability, essentially. Yes, and so places to learn more about this is with the herringalliance.org. And my Ocean River Institute is suing the National Marine Fisheries Service and the Fisheries Council, uh, along with a commercial fisherman and a recreational fisherman, or a recreational boat operator, um, to... Uh, readdress the herring amendment and their herring management for this year, that they didn't decide strict enough uh, monitors and, and other methods to reduce the bycatch problem. So if we win the suit, what that means is the judge will turn it back to the council and to nymphs and say, look, you guys, you got to do better than that for the sake of the herring. And, and why are herring so important to striped bass? Well, herring, herring rub along with uh, the other forage fish, Menhaden and mackerel. And let's not forget that these pair trawlers have taken a huge toll on mackerel. And uh, I know last I checked a few weeks ago, they were even they were only able to catch one percent of their mackerel quota, which 
when these boats, with all the technology and the size of the operation, can't find the fish, they you know that they've uh, they've done some damage to the stock. But all of these forward fish are important to striped bass. The, the fish need the, the food for nutrients and growth, and um, to sustain themselves for these long migrations and their general uh, their general nutritional needs. Um, you know, we've also done quite a bit of work with Menhaden and uh, had some success last week at the ASMFC meeting in Boston in order to uh, restructure the Menhaden management plan to better, to better protect Menhaden. And uh, there were, we had a victory there. Essentially, they're going to uh, protect Menhaden and to the order of a 37% reduction in harvest and... Uh, That'll lead to about sixty thousand metric tons back in the water each year, which which is which is great. There, there's direct links between the health of the striped bass population and uh, feeding on these forage species, um, including uh, one of the threats to the striped bass fishery is a bacterial skin infection called mycobacteriosis that has been prevalent of recent uh, recently in the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, there are some studies out now that suggest that once the fish leave the bay and they're able to feed heavily on the menhaden, they are boosting their immune systems and general overall health enough to fight off this disease, which has been um, a big question mark in the mortality of striped bass, natural mortalities per se. So all forage fish, huge importance for nutritional uh, value and... uh, you know, the striped bass populations need these fish to survive, along with all the other pelagic species, including bluefin tuna, which are somewhat under fire, and uh, pretty much everything else you'll see in the fish market. It's tricky to manage these forage fish because traditionally they, they try to strike a balance of taking as much as you can but not threatening the survival of the species. Uh, but when you're a forage fish... You have to leave enough to be eaten by all the other fish as well. That, that's, that's an important point, Rob. There, there's a new, uh, a bit of a paradigm shift in, in management going on now, which is uh, quite beneficial to the, the pelagic species. The managers are starting to realize that they need to manage the ecosystem as a whole, and you don't just manage a forage species for the sustainability of that species alone. You manage it with the, uh, the forage component included, meaning that you, you leave enough for the species to be able to survive on its own, and you also leave enough for the species to feed on them to be healthy as well. You know, what's the point in trying to save codfish and striped bass and tuna and cutting the harvest down to, you know, whatever levels they deem necessary if you're not going to leave them any food to eat? You know, so you've got to manage it as a whole, and, and that's that's kind of the the uh, direction of management right now. Although there's you know some argument that it's it's uh, a bit late. However, um, something's better than nothing at this point, and uh, these these species do have the ability to bounce back. and And I'm glad to see the protective measures are getting put in place now. Yes. So tell us a bit about the uh, mission of the Massachusetts. Commercial Striped Bass Association. Sure. Uh, Mass Commercial Striped Bass formed a few years ago, and we're made up of uh, Massachusetts resident commercial striped bass fishermen. And 
We essentially have a three-tiered mission, one of which we've talked about extensively already, which is to protect and restore forage fish resources that are heavily depleted and, and to fight the fishing efforts that are contributing to this depletion and also uh, contribute to striper bycatch and mortality that way. So, you know, we're working proactively to help the forage fish resource and uh, with the understanding that uh, the healthy population of these forage stocks is beneficial to all fisheries and all fishermen, commercial or recreational. Uh, the other two missions of the organization is uh, to defend the fishery against influences that are trying to shut us down. Unfortunately, there there are some efforts to ban commercial striped bass fishing, which is uh, you know it's very it's very very sad because it's a it's a sustainable, healthy fishery and a very well managed stock. And uh, you know we can get into this a bit more later. But there, there are bills currently at the Massachusetts State House aimed at shutting down the commercial fishery completely, and uh, you know, something that we have to fight against, or else we won't have a fishery to work for. And yeah, the, there's a real easy misunderstanding that people think that there, you know, that there's a lack of fish in the sea because we're eating so much fish, and to not buy fish to eat really isn't going to mean more fish in the sea because of bycatch or other things, don't you think? Well, the, you know, the, these fisheries, uh, striped bass, for example, it, it's ma- managed strictly. We have it's what's called a hard tack. It's a total, total allowable catch, and we're allowed to catch a certain number of fish per year, and when we hit that number, the fishery is closed. So you know, when you go to the fish market, it's, it's really more of a first-come, first-serve scenario where if there's striped bass there, you should buy it, and you should feel good about it because it's a healthy, sustainable hook-and-line species. It's a very, very clean fishery to support and a very healthy fish. And, you know, whether you buy it or not isn't going to impact how many are are taken from the ocean. Uh, The commercial fishery in Massachusetts Massachusetts actually accounts for only 20% of the entire fishery in the state. And when, uh, in, in terms of numbers of fish caught, it's only 15%. So to attack the commercial fishery and say, oh, it's, uh, it's, it's having a terrible impact on the number of fish in the ocean and whatnot is ludicrous when it's really only a small percentage of the actual total catch. Uh, so it, it's a healthy fish. It's a sustainable hook-and-line fishery only with almost zero bycatch very very low um, uh, discard mortality, and it's something that the consumer should feel good about. Yeah, there was um, an article in the Boston Globe talking about how that they could, um, the fishermen could take a photograph of the fish and send it ahead to the restaurant or something. Yeah, well, there, there's a number of efforts going on uh, nowadays to try to promote uh, boat-to-table type of uh, uh, fisheries interaction and create uh, better markets. And, you know, fishermen in our community, we want folks to understand the quality of seafood that they have available to them, to appreciate it, to understand what types of fishing are going on. And, uh, you know, I think this goes back to this general concept that all commercial fishermen have unfortunately been, been lumped together over the years. 
and uh, and in some cases, you know, given this evil type of um, pirates of the sea mentality, where it's very much not the case. Although there are problems, and we just discussed one: a commercial fishing enterprise, the pear trawlers, which are really harming the oceans. However, there's there's a number of fishermen out there and fisheries where uh, there's responsible fish going fishing going on, and it's it's very clean and there are good products being produced and a quality protein protein source being produced for the American public to consume. Uh, you know, fishermen it's it's much like uh, agriculture, and in, in America we've got you know farmers, we've got small local organic farmers that are really contributing to uh, the positive aspects of American agriculture, and we've got big corporate ag and spraying pesticides and, and chemicals and destroying soil and, and water and, you know, creating big problems. Well, you know, we've, we've got some of that in the fisheries as well. So what we're trying to do is educate the consumer to what fisheries are, are healthy, sustainable, and worthy of supporting versus which are not. And striped bass fishery here in Massachusetts is, is probably one of the cleanest, most sustainable, and um, reputable fisheries there are, period. And the consumer should feel great about supporting it. And, um, you know, it, it's an opportunity. It's a short season. It's an opportunity in the summer to have one of the best-tasting fishes in, in New England and uh, to know that you're supporting a fishery that's um, good for the ocean. Absolutely. I mean, I'm totally for this because I like to eat striped bass, and I like to get it at the fish store instead of out of the ocean or at a restaurant. So for me, you know, if there was no commercial striped bass fishing, I would not be able to eat striped bass. Why would um, powers in the state want to uh, do a state law? Well, I, I don't believe that the powers of the state do want to end commercial bass fishing. However, there, there's one special interest group that is uh, continually filing bills to uh, ban commercial bass fishing in Massachusetts. And unfortunately, it, there's been a bit of a, uh, a tangent on that, and, and commercial striped bass fishermen have been kind of lumped in as anti-recreational fishermen, which is, couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, the fact of the matter is a good portion of commercial bass fishermen are also charter boat operators, and the charter boat is technically a part of the recreational fishery. Right, In addition absolutely. to that, uh, almost every commercial striped bass fisherman fishes recreationally for bass outside of the season. This year's bass season only lasted 18 days commercially, whereas the recreational season uh, was basically from May until November. So it's unfortunate, and the majority of the recreational fishing organizations have stood up against these bills to ban commercial bass fishing. Uh, the oh, biggest, the, the oldest. Excuse me. Yeah. Good for the recreational fishermen to stand against that. That's impressive. It, it is, and and you know it's it's unfortunate this one small group with uh, you know deep pod pockets and and you know the ability to put lobbyists in the state house and uh, really promote some misinformation. Has has uh, has been heard, but you know we we have to keep fighting it, and we'd rather be focusing our efforts on the other facets of our mission, which is to protect forage fish and to improve our fishery and keep it sustainable and profitable. 
uh, yet we've had to allocate a fair amount of our resources and time to fighting this uh, effort to shut us down. And, you know, hopefully that'll be put to bed at some time soon. Uh, there'll probably be a public hearing on it this winter at the State House, and hopefully that'll get shut down for good, and, and we can focus on the important topics, such as uh, helping forage fish issues and doing other things to protect striped bass, because for commercial fishermen and recreational fishermen, there's a there's vested interest in maintaining sustainable striped bass populations and doing everything you can to help the striped bass population. There's really no reason why there aren't uh, there shouldn't be a commercial and recreational fishery. Uh, there's plenty of fish for for all. And as you mentioned, there's an important component of people, the public, who would like to be able to go into a restaurant or a fish market and buy a piece of striped bass. And uh, I don't think the public is generally aware of how close this has been to uh, ending that pra- practice. And those voices aren't necessarily being heard, and those folks aren't being represented. So it's up to them to contact their local state representatives and uh, legislators and let them know how they feel about striped bass. Yes, if you have interest in this, you can write to me at rob at oceanriver.org. Um, I've been up in the state house. I know the legislators that are pushing the bill. Um, and, um, yes, it's important that uh, the voice be heard that, um, you know, that those of us who like to buy it in restaurants, we don't think of having to speak up for that. We just assume that that interest will always be there. And uh, so, yes. Um, and I, I, it's a simple just a email. Small... You, know, yeah. you don't have to get elaborate. A simple email to your legislator or local representative saying you want to maintain the ability to buy striped bass in a fish market or restaurant, that's enough. That's enough. And, uh, yeah. That's, that's it's the striped bass bill. They know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, legislators hear very seldom from their constituents on anything but the top three issues of the day. So they're really thrilled to hear from one or two constituents a lot uh, on these bills that haven't gotten much media attention. Okay, we're going to be right back after this break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with Chatham Fisherman, a commercial hook and line fisherman, Darren Saletta. Uh, Darren, I was int- I've been intrigued that we had an earlier show where we talked to uh, Patrick Paquette, and um, he talked about the Eldridges running a fishing weir, uh, I believe, on the Cape Cod Bay side. And then when I saw you with the Cape Cod Commercial Hook and Fish Hook, hook Fisherman Association, uh, there was someone running a weir on the Nantucket Sound side. Uh, this is great to know that there's still fishing weirs out there. It, it's great, Rob, but, uh, but they're in tough shape right now for a number of reasons, and, uh, and it's unfortunate. Weir fishing has been around for longer than we have written history, I believe, here in New England. And uh, there was a time when apparently it was quite expansive, and it's a very uh, environmentally sound method of fishing. Uh, this is Fishing weirs, for those that don't know, are essentially a series of poles that are driven into the seafloor and a couple of heart-shaped nets that are uh, strung around them. It basically funnels fish into the, into the weir, and the fish can't quite figure out how to get back out, and the fishermen are then able to go back and harvest the live fish from the net. It's a high-quality enterprise, and uh, it's a great method. However, no bycatch. Uh, you know, if there is bycatch, it can be easily released alive with very little damage. And uh, generally, yeah. these fishermen are so well practiced in the migratory patterns and locations where of the species and locations where they place the weirs that uh, they're able to target exactly what they want. Uh, unfortunately, uh, We've had some issues of late, and, and uh, the, the weirs that I'm most familiar with, Robert, are the uh, Eldridge and Martin weirs, which are in Nantucket Sound. And these are local fishermen fishing here out of Chatham and uh, running weirs for anywhere from Chatham down towards Hyannis. Uh, their catches have been absolutely devastated in the past several years by seals that have been um, getting into the weirs every method possible, jumping over the nets, going in through the entrance, and the seals are uh, bright enough to figure their way out, so they're going in and absolutely having a buffet on the catch, and then uh, going back out and repeating that pattern over and over again. And unfortunately with seals, they, they generally don't eat the entire fish that they, 
they're feeding on. They'll eat a part of it. They like to eat the bellies of fish. Um, I've heard from fishermen that fish tub trawl or long line offshore of uh, haddock that have been sliced down the belly and every liver had been eaten out. That's their favorite part to eat. So unfortunately, there's a lot of waste. And um, a seal, which eats, uh, I believe, you know, between 20 and 40 pounds of fish a day to sustain itself, it's going to kill a lot more fish than that in order to, to live because it's only eating, you know, guts, for example. So a 20-pound fish, it may only eat, you know, four or five pounds of that fish. Um, but this is having a huge impact on, on the weir fishermen because uh, their catches are just getting devastated to the tune of about 80% loss at times. That's terrible. It, it, it's quite sad. It's quite sad because you've got a, a couple of, you know, you've got a number of fishermen trying to preserve an ancient method of fishing that's environmentally friendly, and they're just getting run right out of town by this burgeoning seal population that's pretty much uh, unchecked. And it, it's something that, you know, as we were talking about earlier with uh, forage fish, managers need to start addressing as an ecosystem-based management plan instead of just species by species. Here we are trying to protect uh, striped bass and codfish and forage fish and, and everything in between, yet we have this outlier species, the um, mainly the gray seals and the harbor seals, that are completely unchecked with no management plan in place to control their growth and their numbers, and they're absolutely devastating certain areas. Um, the state of Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries has been doing trawl surveys in Nantucket Sound uh, for, I believe, about 40-plus years now, so they have pretty good data there. And they're seeing a plummeting of species and uh, biodiversity in the sound. And mm. some of these species that are disappearing are, are stuff that is not even fished commercially, so sea robins, for example. And there's no idea, you know, necessarily why. And the, the fingers are starting to get pointed at the massive seal colonies on Muskegon, Nantucket, all the way to Monomoy. And those, those are the main entrance channels in, into Nantucket Sound. And when you've got populations of um, tens of thousands of seals and possibly much higher um, patrolling these waters, it, it, you know, I think it's easy to connect the dots as to why uh, food that they're eating and species uh, that they're feeding on are disappearing at alarming rates. And we've got you know, direct evidence of seals feeding in the weirs and uh, other areas from Stage Harbor all the way down to Hyannis and whatnot. Uh, something that I've seen is really fairly disturbing, and I'm sure the surf fishermen from uh, all around New England have seen that the coastal area on the beaches, out to about uh, 15 to 20 feet, is becoming somewhat devoid of fish. The diversity in these areas is, is essentially reduced to nothing. Uh, we do see a high number of seals in these areas, and they're, they're either feeding on everything in there or scaring anything that might come in there out. So the surf fishermen are up a creek as far as trying to find striped bass. I mean, you, you really have to go beyond the 15 to 20-foot line where the fish have a three-dimensional escape route before they will start to show up in any number. So the impact uh, of these seals is considerable, and you know, and of course, there's water quality issues because uh, 
the seals are ingesting a, a lot of fish and, and they're releasing all that fish out the other end at the end of the day and these bays and harbors are um, kind of under attack from a nutrient input and, uh, you know, other issues related to waste products. Hmm. We're, um, we're talking with uh, Darren Saletta, uh, and we're running out of time, Darren. Um, how can people uh, learn more about your work? Well, we're still working on our website, Rob, but uh, people can also check into ccchfa.org for news on what the Commercial Hook Fishermen Association is working on. Uh, you know, on top of that, you know, I, I'd encourage consumers uh, to be aware of what they're eating, what where their fish is coming from. Don't be afraid to ask that question at a fish market or a restaurant and do your best to f- eat species that are in season locally. Um, for those of you concerned with forage fish issues, it's important to understand that um, a number of these fish that are being harvested are being ground up and turned into fish meal in order to feed farm farm fish at a much lower protein assimilation rate, so it's very inefficient. So avoid farm fish like salmon. Uh, farm salmon is probably one of the environmentally worst species you can eat, and we'd urge you to avoid it. Um, you know, and demand alternative species that are found in your local waters. Avoid those popular Big Ten species that you always hear about and ask about other local species such as uh, hake and skate and, uh, you know, fish that are in our local waters in abundant levels and, and taste great. Uh, yeah, I think you'd be quite surprised. Uh, and, yep. of course, you know, on, the, on terms of striped bass, fish responsibly. And uh, whether you're recreational or commercial fisherman, you know, fish responsibly. And, you know, remember, fish breathe water, not air. So if you're going to hold it up for that photo, get it back in the water as soon as possible. Absolutely. People worry about uh, toxins accumulating in fish. And for them, I say, don't eat the top of the food chain. Don't eat the tigers of the sea, but uh, consume smaller fish, and you'll have less, you'll have healthier fish, actually. It, that's, that's true to some degree, and you know, it's a tough call, Rob, because you've got studies coming out saying that the benefits of eating uh, the seafood are outweighing some of the negative health impacts. But, of course, you know, you got to follow certain guidelines and uh and try to focus on uh, the exactly what you said, the, the, the smaller uh, bottom of the food chain fish and avoiding top predators, which are the main targets anyway and are the ones that are having the biggest management problems. So seek out some of these uh, ground fish and uh, plentiful white fish that are, that are here in New England and perhaps less sought after. Try things like bluefish, which when fresh and prepared properly are absolutely delicious. Yes, bluefish is a great, um, much like striped bass. We've seen our bluefish good. market grow tremendously, and, and partly because of consumer demand, and that creates a market for us and a profitable fishery. And people are starting to realize that fresh bluefish is absolutely amazing and tastes great. And you save money when and you eat the way Darren's telling us it costs less than eating the tigers of the sea. That's right. Well, Darren, thank you. Oh, we got three more minutes. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. We have other things to talk about here. Um, destruction of species on rebuilding plans. Um, 
Well, the bottom line is that we've been saying is we need to have adaptive ecosystem management approaches that look systemically across the whole system. Um, give us that summary again. Well, you know, that's what we're, we're hoping to see more of in the management scheme is, the, is an entire ecosystem approach. And instead of focusing on just one species at a time, realizing that all these uh, pelagic and ground fish need the forage fish to survive, and we need to manage those species with that in mind, leaving enough food in the ocean. And, and yeah. looking at the apex predators, such as seals, uh, again, you know, what's the point of trying to save all these valuable ground fish if uh, they, the juveniles and certain areas uh, are absolutely being devastated by a seal population that's uh, under complete protection from the Marine Mammal Protection Act, with some exceptions, and is really just beginning to be studied. So that's something that people need to be aware of, and I understand they're they're cute, and and people have a hard time with that. But um, you know, we need a healthy ocean, not just a healthy species. And this is a tribute to the sacrifices that the commercial fishermen and fishermen have made to uh, more sustainably manage the, the the sea and the seafood and marine life. And you know, NOAA has determined that overall. Uh, we've turned the corner on overfishing. That is, we continue this diligence of these commissions and councils and uh, government agencies working together, you know, that we shall forever be able to eat seafood from the sea. And But with that comes these complexities that we hadn't thought of before, which is when you manage it sustainably, then we're susceptible to these predators coming in when in the past they would come in, they'd eat the population down, they'd leave because there wasn't enough fish, but now that has to be shared by uh, so many different users. So it's just a much more complex uh, process. And I really congratulate um, Darren, you and your commercial colleagues on uh, taking it on the chin for us and yet keeping the fish coming onto the dinner table. Well, we appreciate it, and I think it's important for everyone to realize that commercial fishermen are, uh, you know, honest and reliable workers, and, and we've made a lot of sacrifices as far as regulatory uh, changes have gone over the years, and we have a vested interest in maintaining these sustainable populations and sustainable fisheries for the benefit of not only our jobs, but for the people that we're supplying uh, food with. Darren Saletta, thank you for talking with us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. Have a great day. And for Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shield to the Achilles, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Dr.